Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm joined remotely by fellow co-host Joel Fon. Heidi Ho. We are coming to you on the Monday after the opening weekend of NBA free agency, a weekend that concluded a hectic, batshit crazy week, which also included the moratorium on trades being lifted and the draft. So we thought, what better time than now to regroup and go over some of our winners, losers, and maybe just most intriguing teams from the NBA offseason or of the NBA offseason. And when I say of the NBA offseason, I literally mean of the last week because that's the NBA offseason in these pandemic times. Obviously, some stuff still has to be settled, but none of it is really going to, I don't think, change our opinions of winners and losers from a free agency perspective. I mean, obviously big trades can go down, but you know, we know Anthony Davis is staying with the Lakers. I guess we just don't know the exact terms. We know, we assume Brandon Ingram's probably going to extend with the Pelicans, but you know, either way, he's not going anywhere, we don't think. So in terms of things that will really shake up the league, I think for the most part, we've seen it all now. And so we're ready to go over, like I said, our winners, losers, and most intriguing teams so why don't we just do this? Well, let's just bounce back and forth for the next hour or so. We can start with winners, save the worst for last. Um, so so let's just get it started right away. Give me give me one of your off-season winners. Got to start with the Lakers, I think. Absolutely. I mean, to me, they're the most unambiguous winners of the off-season so far. I just think, it, you know, I don't know that all the moves that they have made are slam dunks, but... You take their offseason in totality and a team that just won the championship and had, you know, not a ton of maneuverability in order to improve its roster this offseason managed to get even better. And I think that is a tribute to, you know, the front office and Rob Polinka and to Clutch Sports, honestly. <laughs> like, yep. they they have pulled a lot of strings in order to make all of this happen and it's worked out quite well. Yeah, I, you'll remember I mentioned it, I think the night or the morning after they won the championship, we recorded a pod, and, and even when I wrote about them that night, and I've said it often since then, the LeBron and AD Lakers just won a title in their first season together. And I was convinced and remain convinced that that team that they just won a title with in their first team together will go down as unquestionably the worst AD LeBron Lakers team out of the however many they end up leading together because in a lot of ways it was just kind of like ragtag team that you remember they kind of threw together after they lost out on Kawhi and a lot of guys were already off the market like you can make the argument this was the first time in the AD era of LeBron's career Lakers career sorry that he's really been able to mold the team I think the way he and yes potentially clutch wanted but I like you said, I think they're the most unambiguous winners because I, I, I can't see how you look at this as anything else but a win. They're the best team in basketball. They just won the championship. They still have LeBron friggin' James. They're going to have Anthony Davis long-term once that gets settled. And they added Dennis Schroeder, Wes Matthews, Montrez Harrell, Mark Gasol, and re-signed KCP and Marquis Morris, whatever. I think they're better. I think they're a little more versatile. They're deeper than they were last year. And I mean, the Gasol, even the Gasol signing, like Gasol, we know... We especially know watching him in Toronto up close the last year and a half that he is not the offensive force he once was. He won't look at the hoop sometimes, but the playmaking is never going to abandon him. He's still an elite defensive big man. And just the like ingenuity, the basketball ingenuity between him and LeBron James 
and the playmaking is going to be fantastic to watch. Those guys, between the two of them, can pick teams apart by facial expressions and nods and winks. It's going to be really cool to see the synergy between them. So yeah, I just, I don't know what else there is to say other than the LeBron-led team that just won the championship might be the biggest winners of the offseason. What did you think was their best move? Honestly, maybe the Wes Matthews pickup. Like, it yeah, was- for the biannual exception, I I mean, I, I understand for Wes, it's like you get this one year. The free agent market was trash. There was just like no cap space around the league. So, you know, you take the, the one-year deal, compete for a championship, and then hit the market again, having potentially increased your value, and you go into free agency when a lot more teams around the league will have space. I get it, but I mean, for him to take the biannual is an absolute coup for the Lakers. I thought he was really good defensively for the Bucks last year. I love that move so much because it just makes the Danny Green trade look even better. And I think, you know, that Danny Green trade happened, I liked it, but I wouldn't say that I loved it necessarily. I liked it because, you know, especially if the Lakers were thinking that they weren't going to bring Rondo back, they definitely needed another ball handler. And I like Schroeder. He had a fantastic year last year. Obviously, you know, TBD on whether that's repeatable because he blew away his previous career highs in two-point shooting, three-point shooting. It was his best defensive season. Like, he has to prove that all of that is real. But they needed the ball handling. And I I liked the trade, but I also thought, you know, losing Danny Green's off-ball gravity, his three-point shooting, and his defense most of all, made the trade something closer to a wash. But I think them immediately turning around and and grabbing Wes Matthews to essentially take Danny Green's spot as like the primary defender of big opposing wings just made that whole series of moves uh, feel like a home run. I mean, Harrell's good value, honestly, at the mid-level. I do wonder a little bit about the fit there and what, their rotation is going to look like do you think like I don't think he's going to start he'll probably come off the bench and be more of a backup five but I I do wonder how they're going to close games like is Harold going to be on the floor in the as a part of their closing lineups like I think a lot of the time they're just going to close with AD at the five but then you know are they is LeBron playing the four in those closing lineups or is it Harold and if Harold's not starting and he's not closing He's only playing, you know, maybe 18 to 22 minutes a game, something like that. Then, I don't know. I mean, it's it's still a a good pickup at that price, but I just don't know how much he's actually going to move the needle given, like on paper, it looks great because this is a guy who just won six man of the year. He's obviously a really good scorer off of the bench, but he doesn't help their defense at all. And offensively, he's honestly a bit of a tenuous fit. I think, uh, you know, between LeBron and AD. If Schroeder and Harrell can kind of prop up their bench units throughout the season, I think this is a win. They literally just got the two best bench players from last season to prop up a second unit that really, other than the playoffs, wasn't that great. Depth was an issue with them. And now they've clearly addressed that with those guys. And we've talked about this before. It's a very simplistic answer to just say LeBron fixes everything, but... You've mentioned it too. Like he just seems to find a way to maximize teammates and kind of mask their flaws. And guys, when they get onto LeBron James teams, for the most part, 
just seem to figure things out in terms of sticking to their role, not really ruffling any feathers. Like even, you know, Dwight Howard was a prime example last year where I know obviously a very different player from Harrell in terms of defense, offense, and and actually did address some things the Lakers needed as long as he was ready to go. But there were a lot of questions about Dwight Howard's perceived role and how he perceived his role going in. And they ended up, he goes in on a non-guaranteed contract. And he had the year that he had that, quite frankly, I'm not convinced he can repeat in Philly because he doesn't have LeBron James. Like, I really do think so much of it is get to a LeBron-led team and things will just kind of fall into place the way they're supposed to fall into place. And so I think in a lot of other situations, on a lot of other teams, Harrell, there, there'd be more questions because it would be like, well, he probably wants to start or he wants more minutes or he thinks he's going to close. And, you know, if they don't play him enough minutes, is it really worth it? But on a LeBron-led team, I just honestly don't worry about those things. I think he'll give them his 15 to 20 off the bench and his five to 10 rebounds a night off the bench. I think him and Schroeder will mostly dominate opposing reserve units. And I think because of his defensive shortcomings, which the Nuggets can tell you all about, he probably won't close for them. And I think by the time the playoffs roll around, especially everyone will be fine with it because that just seems to be what LeBron James teams do. Yeah. The other question I guess I have is whether Schroeder is going to start or whether they sort of go with, LeBron as the de, the de facto point guard and instead start with, you know, Gasol at the five, AD at the four, uh, LeBron, KCP, and Wes Matthews. And then, and then bring Schroeder off of the bench, which, I mean, to me, that's his best role. Like a big part of the reason he was so effective last year is that he was coming off of the bench and essentially just dominating opposing reserve units. He was also closing games in that, hyper-effective three-guard lineup that we've talked so much about with Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. He could definitely be part of of some of their closing groups, but I think the fact that, you know, LeBron was so effective, essentially, as a point guard means that, I mean, they're, they're going to have a chance to really mix and match, I think, as far as how they start games and how they close games. And I think that optionality is a big part of what makes them such a dangerous team, on top of the fact that LeBron just has a way of making everything work. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to like the makeup of this team right now. Gasol, he looked a bit washed at the end of last season, to be honest. And there's certain things that he just can't really do anymore. He is not a threat to score at all from two-point range. He is a non-threat as a role man. And like you said, there are times when he just doesn't look at the rim. You know, he's hesitant to let it fly from three-point range. And the other thing is like, I don't know how he fits into the Lakers offense, like how an offense that sort of, you know, puts LeBron on the ball and has everything essentially revolve around LeBron is going to make use of him because the only kind of comparable that I can think of in LeBron's career is Kevin Love. And Kevin Love is not the passer that Mark Gasol is, but he is a very good playmaker for a big. And in Cleveland, they didn't make use of that at all. You know, like they just parked him on the perimeter and had him spot up, essentially. And I don't think that that would be the best use of Mark Gasol. But I I, I don't know. I It's not like LeBron has typically been the guy who is like jetting around, cutting off a ball, you know, like playing off of a playmaker from the high post. I think that's a possibility. Like LeBron is fully capable of being a, an active cutter, but... 
that's just not something we've really seen from him on a consistent basis before. What about Gasol's playmaking helping prop up some of those reserve units? Maybe not necessarily coming off the bench, but maybe staggering the minutes in a way where he ends up logging a lot of minutes with the reserves and maybe gets to use more of his playmaking chops in some of those lineups that maybe lack the playmaking. And then, you know, whether it's Schroeder, you know, closing with the other guys while Gasol spends more time with the bench units, whatever the case may be. But I think I think there's ways Frank Vogel can and will manipulate the lineups so that they still can get the most out of Gasol. I don't doubt that. I think I think he'll be a, a nice piece for them. I don't know how much he'll really move the needle. Like I think that look, the Raptors had a ninety eight point nine defensive rating with him on the floor last year. It was insane. And again, th- those numbers started to slip in the playoffs. His mobility was clearly hampered. Like the Celtics made him look particularly bad by just forcing him to defend in space over and over again. But his intelligence makes up for a lot. He does not make mistakes at the defensive end of the floor. He makes up for his lack of foot speed by consistently being in the right place at the right time and just being able to sniff out opposing team schemes on the fly. And obviously as a communicator, he is basically second to none. So I do think he can he can help their defense, but I don't know. I, I see him playing kind of like a 15-minute-a-game role for them and probably not being on the floor in their highest leverage playoff moments. And that's fine. Let's stay in the Pacific Division. Another clear-cut winner. We talked about them last week because they had already made the trade for Chris Paul, but the Phoenix Suns trade for Chris Paul, sign Jay Crowder and Etwan Moore, honestly, which isn't a bad pickup, and re-sign Javon Carter and Dario Saric. Now that you know they've got Crowder, has anything changed from the way you spoke about them last week? I think I think you said you thought they could maybe challenge for a top four seed. I still think they can. I don't think they'll necessarily get one because there are a few other teams in the West who also got better that I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, I, I, I see them as essentially being in that mix with, you know, five other teams after the top tier, which to me is just Lakers and Clippers. I think there's a drop off after those teams. And then... You know, between Dallas, Portland, Denver, Utah, Phoenix, I don't see a ton of separation there. So, so you think like, they're in that mix? That's what I'm saying. You think like no, I do. They, yeah, they I could threaten even mix. for the three seed, maybe, or, or you know, like I, I, yeah. better than the Nuggets, even. Yeah, yeah. I, I see them essentially as being a team that could finish anywhere between third and eighth. And I just don't think that there is actually going to be a whole lot of distinction between the third place team and the eighth place team in terms of quality. I think it'll be determined by who wins close games, who stays healthy. And even then, I think, you know, they could be separated by something like four wins, you know? You know whose teams tend to win a lot of close games? Chris Paul's, yeah. Yeah. And and the Suns had a lot of trouble closing games last year, obviously until the bubble when uh, they had no trouble closing games. But for most of the season, they were not a good team in clutch time. And Chris Paul was probably the best high volume crunch time player in the league. I don't know that he can replicate that because there is like a certain amount of luck that just goes into that sort of thing. But I do think there is a certain skill set that Chris Paul has that is just it makes it replicable, right? Because he can so reliably just like get to that elbow jumper. He doesn't turn the ball over and makes great decisions and is just a master at 
orchestrating a half-court offense. I don't think the Suns are going to have the same kind of clutch time net rating that the Thunder had last year because that's not something you can ever bank on a team doing. But I think they'll be considerably better at finishing out games than they were. And that will, like could very well help them uh, move up the standings. You know, That could be the difference between them being the eight seed and being the three seed. So I loved the Crowder pickup same. also. It's just like an added element of toughness. I thought you know, their defense was going to be okay, but I, this makes me think that like they're going to actually be an above average defense on top of, like we said a couple episodes ago after they made the CP trade, I think we both think that they're easily going to be a top 10, maybe even a top five offense. To talk about a team, you know, sniffing the top five in offense and being, you know, somewhere between 10th and 15th potentially on defense. And that's like, you're on your way to 50 plus wins. With Crowder, I just like the versatility that he offers them because he can play the three or the four. I think at this point, he's better guarding like power forwards in the post than he is guarding on the perimeter. Uh, but that makes him a really nice fit alongside Mikhail Bridges. Like, I don't know if he'll start or not ahead of Cam Johnson. Either of those guys could basically start. But Bridges is going to be the guy who is essentially tasked with like the number one perimeter assignment. Like He'll guard the best opposing wing or guard player. And Crowder will take you know, the bulkier forwards. And, you know, we saw throughout the playoffs, like that's who Miami had him guard. Like they had him be the primary on Giannis. They had him be the primary on Anthony Davis. And it's not like he's shutting any of those guys down one-on-one, but what we, he, what he is capable of doing, I think is being the first line of defense that is slowing those guys down enough that the help defense can do its job. And so, you know, you're looking at a forward rotation now that includes Johnson, Bridges, Crowder. All three of those guys can shoot. All three of those guys can defend. Saric. And and re-signing Saric as well, which, you know, they got him, I think, at a good price. Uh, essentially, the mid-level, three years, $27 million. Now, to me, like with Crowder there and probably set to play the four on something close to a full-time basis, means that Saric is going to be like their backup five. And I think they found toward the end of last year, that that is where he's best as opposed to, you know, they shoehorned him into a role as like their starting power forward early in the year, uh, mainly because Aiton was out with that suspension. But I think once they unlocked him as a small ball five, not even that small, he's like six foot 10, um, but as a backup five, that's when he kind of started to break out. So I think that's, that's a good mix. I don't know where uh, Jalen Smith their draft pick fits into all that. Maybe this year is just kind of a, a learning year for him because they do have a decent amount of front court depth. And you mentioned Etwan Moore. I thought that was a good move toward addressing their lack of backcourt depth. They get him on the minimum. And I, I mentioned before that I, I wasn't feeling too good about their backcourt depth because it was just Carter, who they resigned, uh, campaign, who I think they have an option on that I'm not sure whether they picked up or not, but... Payne, Carter, and Elia Kobo was all they had in the way of backcourt depth. And I think Moore is like totally unsexy, but also pretty effective at what he does, which is shoot threes and occasionally attack closeouts and hit floaters. Like that's his game. He's good in that role. He can defend a little bit. And I think that's all they really needed out of a bench guard. Yeah, I think given how good we expect their starters and, and as a closing unit to be, I think you know, some sort of reserve combination of more one or both of Carter and Payne, Saric, 
Cam Johnson, that's a perfectly fine reserve unit when your starters and your closing lineups are as good as we think Phoenixes are going to be. You know, you don't need a bench to come in. You don't need a six man of the year award winner on a right. team like that. You just need some, just give us four minutes each half. Honestly, give us like four minutes each half where you just kind of hold the fort. And as long as they can do that, and I think that group can, this team's going to be really good, man. And like, you just look up and down the roster and obviously at their top, like six, seven, eight guys, it's a team that has star quality and like star level scoring in Booker and, and even CP, honestly, who can still create for himself, especially in the clutch, right? So they have star level scoring. They have star level creation. I think they've got some defensive problem solvers. They even have like a post presence in Aiton, right? Like for all of Aiton's warts, the one thing that dude can do is score in the post. And like, he is a really reliable option if you dump the ball down to him. And on a team with Devin Booker and Chris Paul now, that becomes more dangerous. So I just look at this team as like, They've got a lot of answers already. And, and yeah, you maybe would want them to be to have a higher defensive ceiling if we were going to talk about them as being actual legit contenders. But you get past the like legit contenders right now, they have a chance to be as good as anybody in that next year. And their defensive ceiling to me is going to be totally dictated by Aiden. Yeah. And whether he can take another leap similar to what he took last year because... The leap he made defensively last year was gargantuan. And that still, to me, only got him to being like league average at that end, maybe slightly above because, you know, his his numbers as a rim protector were actually quite good. But I, I still think he makes mistakes or just gets hung up in no man's land when he's defending the pick and roll. And I think he did a lot to sort of streamline his movements but I think he can get a lot better in that regard. And just given his sheer size and the fact that he has flashed a decent amount of side-to-side mobility, there's a chance that he could work himself into being like a plus-plus defender. And given the perimeter defensive talent around him, if he's like a legit anchor in the middle, there's no reason this can't be like one of the better defensive teams in the league. So... I do think the defensive ceiling is there. It's just kind of all hinging on one guy. And I I don't know. Maybe he's just the defender that he was last year, in which case the team I think will still be really good, but potentially not elite. If he actually does take another step defensively, I think this team is a contender straight up. Yeah, I don't see why not. Because again, I think the offensive talent is very much there. And they have, like, there's just no mismatched parts. You know what I mean? I really think there is a lot to be said for fit. And I, I just like the way that this roster fits together. And you were even mentioning, you know, the bench, which I think is perfectly fine, especially considering that you're probably going to have one of Chris Paul and Devin Booker on the floor at all times. Like you put one of those guys alongside, you know, whether it's Crowder or Cam Johnson coming off of the bench, but like one of those guys and Saric in the front court with, you know, like an Etwan Moore or a Javon Carter in the backcourt, depending on the situation, like whether you need defense or offense. I think you're pretty set, man. And I don't know, again, like there, there's just, there are a lot of really good teams in the West. So I haven't gone through it yet to figure out who I actually think is going to finish where. But I just think when I look at it right now, I kind of see those like three to eight teams being interchangeable. And given where the Suns have been the last 10 years, man, that, that makes this a, a pretty damn good offseason for them. You talk about teams that are in that three to eight mix and and maybe even 
the top half of the West playoff bracket. I think we now have to include the Blazers in that conversation. We were already talking about them last week, but just to recap their offseason, pick up Robert Covington, Derek Jones Jr., brought Cantor back, brought Harry Giles in, and then they re-signed Rodney Hood and Carmelo Anthony. Uh, I'm assuming you agree that they are a unquestionable winner. 100%. I mean, I thought that even after they just got Covington, like if that was all they did, I would have called them a winner of the offseason. Even though, as we mentioned when we talked about that trade, the, the price was a little bit steep in the form of two first-rounders, he is just such a good fit for what they need. He's on a great contract. And they supplement that by bringing in Jones Jr., who, again, I think maybe they overpaid for a little bit. But another excellent defender on the wing. And I think the issue they might run into is both Covington and Jones Jr. are way better as team defenders than one-on-one defenders. And I still don't think they have that like lockdown perimeter defender. I think... Gary Trent maybe could grow into being that guy, but his size makes him more of like, he's going to guard, you know, opposing point guards and shooting guards more so than he's going to guard like the, the power wings in the conference that are going to be their boogeyman. You know what I mean? Like who's guarding Kawhi, who is guarding LeBron? Like obviously Jones Jr. And Covington are the guys who will, who will split those assignments, but those guys excel as team defenders and one-on-one they're still, Pretty good, but not exceptional. I thought taking a flyer on Giles was uh, a sneaky, interesting pickup. I mean, I still have a lot of hope for Harry Giles, not necessarily to become a star, but I, I think he can be a like solid rotation big on a good team. Um, you know, Cantor has his warts, but this is a team that played Hassan Whiteside the amount of minutes they did the last year in a little bit. It, it, addition by subtraction, dumping Whiteside. Whiteside was good last year, man. He, he was good. I, I mean, he, yeah, he definitely has his warts as a player. He, you know, doesn't have the highest basketball IQ. He block chases and uh, isn't the most skilled offensive player, is a lazy screener, all that stuff. Like, we know all that. But, but no, honestly, man, look at his numbers as a rim protector. Like, his defensive field goal percentage in the restricted area was fantastic. The Blazers were like 10 points per 100 better with him on the floor. He was a good pick and roll dance partner for Dame. Like he wasn't bad at all. I think they got what they got out of him and there was no way in hell they were getting anywhere near that kind of value out of him again because I don't believe in Hassan Whiteside being able to do that for more than eight days at a time, let alone two years in a row. I think it was addition by subtraction getting him out of there. And uh, I mean, Cantor is far from a perfect big man, but I think he'll be fine on this team. You know, I hope Nurk has a full healthy season ahead of them. And I think that solves a lot of their issues as well. And you just didn't need Whiteside. You can have Cantor coming off the bench doing what he does. Covington and Derek Jones Jr. make them a lot better and a lot more versatile defensively. You know, how many years in a row have we talked about just like the inevitability of Dame and CJ having the floor where it is for this team, right? And I think there's a lot more, there's a more exciting ceiling that's attainable for this team now than maybe there was in the last couple of years. And I know that's weird to say because they made the West Finals a couple of years ago, but I think this team should have higher hopes than that team had. Made the West Finals, by the way, with Cantor playing a pretty central role. Yeah. And he ultimately was played off the floor in that Warriors series, but to get to that point, he was really good. 
And I think as a situational big, he can still be really effective. He's a tremendous rebounder, really good interior scorer. And, you know, I think bringing him back, especially because all it took was trading Hazonia, was a nice piece of business. That does leave me with the question of where does Giles fit into that? Because, uh, I mean, maybe there, there are just matchups where they like him better than Cantor as a backup five. I think Olshea kind of pointed to Giles's positional versatility, but I don't know how he's going to get any minutes at the four, considering that they now have Zach Collins, Covington, and Mello all essentially occupying that position. And, and Derek Jones Jr., who's basically a four as well. There's a bit of a logjam at that position, especially like... I still see Collins as a five. Like that to me is his best position. Yeah, I, I, I think he's a center. And I think in general, this team has too many bigs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's not like there's nothing wrong with that. Like having depth at that position is fine. I just, what makes me maybe skeptical that Giles is actually going to be good. Not that like NBA talent evaluators haven't missed on guys before, but the fact that Giles could only get a minimum contract from a team with two established centers in Nurkic and Cantor and another young player who profiles as a center in Zach Collins makes me curious about how the rest of the league values him. Uh, And I think, look, he's 22. He was a majorly touted prospect, you know, coming out of high school. And obviously he had, I think, two ACL surgeries or microfracture surgeries. Like he had two knee surgeries essentially before he even entered the draft. And that killed his stock. And the Kings obviously didn't see a future there because they didn't even pick up his third year option. I really like his passing. And I I think there's potential there, but um, there's obviously not that same consensus around the NBA. I feel like, you know, that's a team that's maybe ripe to make a move and not anything earth shattering, but maybe to balance out the roster a little bit, like maybe one of the bigs goes. It seems like Collins would be like if they wanted to to swing for like a win now trade, like they decide this is the year we're going for it. I think Collins is the young piece that is most expendable that can actually bring back something of value. And given the fact that, I mean, that's what would maybe concern me a bit is like, is he even going to have enough of a role and enough of a chance to showcase his skills this year to the point that like they can turn him into a valuable trade asset because he seems pretty blocked as things stand. And like, we haven't even talked about, they brought Mello back, right? Yeah. Where does Mello fit into this? Mello fits into this because Dame seemed to love him as a teammate, but in terms of trying to like carve out a decent amount of minutes for him, it's tough, man. If, if they want to be as good as they can be, there shouldn't be that many minutes for Mello, but there probably will be a pretty consistent amount off the bench. Look, look, he's still, Still a good shoot, a good three point shooter, uh, who still takes way too many bad shots and doesn't really acknowledge what he is at this point. He hit some big shots for them in general last year, but for what he is now and what he refuses to be, Melo should be getting like ten to twelve minutes off your bench if you're a good team. And the fact that they, you know, they brought him back for that, I believe the veterans minimum. You'd assume that that means he understands that, but also it's mellow. So I'm not convinced he understands that. And I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I didn't write it down, but I, I don't know what his minutes were last season, but it was a 33 hell- minutes a game. There you go. I was going to say, but it was definitely starter level minutes. And so I, I wouldn't be so quick to assume that just because he agreed to a veterans minimum that he's going to be okay with some like ninth man role, you know? 
and, this and is that why- that concerns me about them. Like, I think they're a winner. I think they can they can be the best team out of the second tier of contenders. You know, I like Giles's upside. Yeah, there are some questions to be asked, and I think the mellow one and how that lowers their ceiling and takes away minutes from guys who are better right now it is a legitimate question to ask. Yeah, no, this is why I felt even though even though I think given the production that Mello can offer, getting him at the veterans minimum is fine. I like that's mm-hmm. a good value, but I was feeling higher on the Blazers I think before they made that move for all the reasons you mentioned. Just like having Mello there has a way of making teams feel obligated to play him. And I think if they are playing him over Covington, if he's eating into Covington's minutes, if he's eating into Derek Jones's minutes, if he's eating into Rodney Hood's minutes, I mean, Hood, we don't know what he's going to look like coming back from that Achilles tear, but he shot 49% from three when he was healthy last year. And those guys are all essentially going to be competing for minutes at the four. I just don't see how there's going to be room for Mello to play anywhere near what he thinks he's capable of playing or thinks he deserves to be playing. And that worries me a bit because if the Blazers actually play him as much as he wants to play, then he's going to be taking away minutes from guys who are better than him. Do you have one more winner for us? I think the Sixers, I mean, just, they got leaner. They get Horford off of their books. They pull in Danny Green, who I think is just a better fit with their roster. I I can't claim to know all that much about Tyrese Maxey aside from just like the highlights of him that I've watched, but he seems like a great character guy, a great on-court fit for that team. Everybody seems to love that pick. And the amazing thing about that pick is they almost lost it. You may recall that was a top 20 protected pick that they owed to the Thunder. And they got that pick because on the last day of the season in the bubble, Mike Muscala made a three-pointer at the buzzer that nudged the Thunder essentially into the five spot in the West and handed the draft pick back to the Sixers at number 21, when if it had landed at 20, the Thunder would have had it. So thanks to Mike Muscala, they now have Tyrese Maxey, a guard who is seemingly going to offer them you know, some off-the-dribble chops, a lot of defensive energy. Um, so that seems like a great add for them. And then I I liked the Josh Richardson for Seth Curry swap. Uh, I like that for both sides as we talked about when it happened, but I I think Curry is just going to be a really good fit there. And then nabbing Dwight Howard at one year for the minimum to essentially be Embiid's backup, which is something they desperately needed, especially after moving Horford, who was, you know, their starting four slash backup five last year. They have always just had issues throughout the Embiid era when Embiid is not on the floor. And I think Howard for, you know, 17, 18 minutes a game can be a pretty good stopgap. I agree that the Sixers are clear winners from the offseason. I love bringing in Curry. I like, obviously, love getting Horford off their books and, you know, bringing in Danny Green, even Terrence Ferguson. The Maxi deal, Isaiah Joe, who they got in the second round, whether he plays or not, again, he was one of the best shooters in the draft and having another shooter on this team obviously doesn't hurt. The two things I'd say I'm not as sure about, one, the Dwight signing. I was one of the biggest proponents of what Dwight was doing last season, but I don't believe in his ability to replicate that without having LeBron James around. Like, I just don't. 
And I think it won't take that long into the season to realize that the Embiid-less minutes are still going to go the way we expect them to go because Dwight Howard isn't the answer there. And then I'm not really sure how I feel about the fact they turned Zaire Smith into Tony Bradley, especially when you consider the overall, the context, and the big picture of the fact that they turned Mikael Bridges into Zaire Smith a year ago. So, or two years ago, whenever it was. Obviously, it's like pretty tragic what's happened to Zaire Smith. Like he missed his entire rookie year because he had like a crazy reaction to, was it sesame that he was allergic to? Yeah, it was something like that. And then had like a surgery that had some complications in his foot. Like he had a lot of helium coming into the draft because he was just one of the absolute craziest athletes in that class. And obviously the Sixers felt highly enough about him that they flipped Bridges, who was from Philly and seemed like a great fit with that team, whose mom literally worked for the team. They they drafted him and immediately flipped him for Smith. And to be fair, they did get a future Heat first rounder in that deal as well. They wound up using it in the Tobias Harris trade. So I think at the end of the day, it's kind of like a sunk cost thing. Like if they just don't think that Smith at this point is capable of being a contributor, then I don't think what they paid in order to get him really matters. Like if they think he's done, they flip him for Tony Bradley and Bradley gives them some Dwight insurance. If as you expect, Dwight isn't actually effective. And I do think to your point for, and this applies to Dwight and Bradley because they're both, uh, you know, dependent scorers. They're just rim runners, essentially, who need guys to feed them the ball. And there isn't anybody on the Sixers who's actually really going to be capable of doing that. Um, so offensively, those guys could be close to zeros, but I think they both have some defensive upside. And from a backup center, I don't know that you need a whole lot more than that. Okay, before we get to losers, I did want to ask you one question because I, uh, based on our previous conversations off air, I don't think you had them as a winner. And I just want to know why before we get to losers. Why don't you consider the Hawks an offseason winner? Look, I think they got better. I just don't know that they got better enough to justify some of the moves that they made. And, yeah, and it's I'm just most... because they signed Rondo, isn't it? That's why you don't want to call them a winner. Okay, so first of all, we don't <laughs> we don't know whether they're getting bogged in or not. The Kings are still deciding whether to match. And the Hawks, I guess to their credit, made it a pretty difficult offer sheet to match. Uh, four years, 72 million, which is already a lot of cheddar for you know a complimentary player like Bogdan, who I like, but I think... Honestly, and all of the hullabaloo about the Bucks deal and how it fell apart has maybe become a little bit overrated. And they add a 15% trade kicker in that deal that apparently has to be paid by the incumbent team in a trade. So obviously that's, you know, their goal in that is to make it as difficult as possible for Sacramento to match and they may succeed in that. But then I don't know, is, is Bogdanovich necessarily what you want at four years, 72 million. And then Gallo, who I love Gallo as a player. And again, offensively, I think he'll make them better. And maybe they're not done either. But for now, I just don't know what that really means for their front court rotation. Like, what does that mean for John Collins? I'd expect a Collins move, man. I would expect that too. And maybe that'll happen and that will clarify things. And then we can really take a big picture approach to their offseason. But for now, Gallo at three years, 61 million 
given his age, his injury history, and just the strangeness of the fit there. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, assuming they go into the season with this being their actual roster, what do you think their closing lineup looks like? You know, is it Collins at the five and Gallo at the four? Because that is a very defensively deficient front court, especially you know, playing alongside Trey Young and Bogdan Bogdanovich, which is not exactly a defensively proficient backcourt. Yeah, if, I, th- I think you go with Capella. Okay, so then is Collins not on the floor or is Gallo playing the three? Because then whatever benefit you get from Capella being on the floor is kind of washed away by having to have Gallo guard threes. I don't think Collins is in the plans. Even if the roster stands right now, he's not in their closing lineup. I mean, that's going to get dicey because he is, uh, I mean, he's extension eligible right now doesn't seem like he's getting that extension but he's also going to be an rfa at the end of the coming season and is going to want to get paid and if he's being marginalized and that is tanking his value as he potentially enters restricted free agency then that's going to cause some problems dicey doesn't begin to describe that situation he's going to be unhappy but so this is my thing it's like why i don't know why gallo was really the guy that they decided to throw the bag at because their defense was a tire fire last year. And I just don't see like, it'll maybe get a little bit better because, you know, they got Chris Dunn. Uh, they drafted a Kongwu. And even as a rookie, like just given his profile, it seems like he's actually going to be able to help them at that end. Having Capella for a full season will help. Although honestly, Capella historically has had very little positive impact on his team's defense when he's been on the floor including rebounding. Like despite his own individually good rebounding numbers, his teams have generally rebounded the ball better with him on the bench. So I don't know that that's going to be the kind of impact defensive addition that it seems like it would be on paper. But all that aside, it's just, I I don't know. Why was Gallo the guy? Like why not? I'm thinking, you know, KCP for instance, right? And maybe... Clutch was just always going to secure him a, a deal with the Lakers. But like, I don't know, man, it, like that's would seem like a way more uh, like like a better fit for them, like a guy that they actually should have targeted, like somebody who can play the sort of spot up three point shooting role while also offering high level perimeter defense. Whereas Gallo, it's like he doesn't really have a defensive position and offensively, you know, the shooting is obviously huge, but also a lot of the stuff that he does that makes him really valuable, which is like, here's a 6'10 guy who can create off the dribble is less valuable. I think when you're playing alongside a guy like Trey Young, who is kind of dominating the ball on every single possession. Yeah. But Gallo can also still be like a very impactful player off the ball. And like, I think like a Trey Young Gallo pick and roll combination. Is as deadly as it gets in the East anyway, because nothing's as deadly as a LeBron AD PNR, obviously. But that's, you know, as devastating uh, a pick and roll combination that exists outside of, I guess, Kyrie and KD, you know, in, in the East. And I think there's something to look, I, you know, they're nowhere close to contending in the next couple of years or for the next three years, even in the life of Gallo's deal. But I do think there's something to, especially because they already have the potentially transcendent star in Trey locked up. And I know he's a one-way player, but I think he has the ability to be so good on that one end of the floor that he can be a, you know, 
a foundational piece and a contender in the future regardless. I think if you already have that type of player and you've drafted him, he's a homegrown guy, there is something to just like surrounding him with more talent and giving him a chance to compete more. You know, and even even if that does mean for them just competing for the eighth seed next year, because we're not talking about a team that's like completely lost in the wilderness with like no young player to build around, right? I think especially when they get Bogdan, you can argue that there's going to be some overlap between Gallo and Bogdan and like, are you really going to get the peak value out of both of them when you're paying them for peak value? That I think is a is a, an argument to be had for sure. But the way I look at it is like they just load it up on talent and I think maybe for their situation, maybe they loaded up on talent the most they could have. Like to your point, like maybe KCP was never going there. Maybe a lot of these other guys were never going there for whatever reason. And maybe they, through the usual NBA tamper happy back channels, established early on that these were the two guys that were their most realistic targets to use that money on. They don't think they're going to be players next year and free agents, like whatever the case may be. And they just went out and maxed out on the amount of talent they could possibly max out on. And I, I understand that on the offensive side of the, ball. on the offensive side of the ball, which is where I'm going. I, I was going to say, and I understand that maxing out on the talent. And when you've already got Trey young locked up and you just want to start competing for something soon, the flip side to that is they have gone completely, completely all out on offense. We can talk about the done acquisition which obviously is on the other end and even rondo if they ever get to the playoffs maybe can offer defense but but i don't know there's something fun to me about them going all out on offense like it's going to be incredibly entertaining to watch oh i don't doubt that at all but but yeah from a wins and losses perspective you would have hoped that they found a way to balance things a little more but look i i do i think the dunn signing was really good and i think you know if if trey and dunn play together that's, you know, a nice little fire and ice backcourt there uh, with a good amount of playmaking between the two of them as well. And I think this team is a lot better than they were last season. They just have some stuff to figure out to balance the roster. Yeah, I would put them in pole position to nab that eighth seed in the East for whatever that's worth to them. I just think, you know, I would have, like I look at the, the deal that Crowder signed with the Suns, three years, 30 million, which is half of what Gallo made over three years. I would have liked that, like I would have liked him better on that deal in Atlanta than Gallo on his deal because that's right. a guy who can actually, you know, defensively play either the three or the four. Not nearly the shooter that Gallo is, but can still space it out, can still play in the pick and pop, and just gives you, you know, a little bit more two way versatility. But I don't think Crowder's leaving Miami to play for the Hawks. I think he's leaving Miami to play for a team that he sees as a contender in Phoenix, but I don't think he's leaving Miami to join a team that whose ceiling is like the eight seed, you know? Yeah. And I, that's, that's what I'm saying. I think a lot of what the Hawks did took that into account of like who they realistically could and couldn't get. Well, I mean, to be fair, Gallo was quoted as saying a couple of weeks ago that at this point in his career, like he doesn't really care about money as much as he cares about championships, and he's still signed with the Hawks. So Listen, I think as you, a Gallo, show, you show a player the money, and a lot of that talk, I think, goes out the window. As the leader of the Gallo fan club, I can tell you I didn't believe that quote for one second. <laughs> Gallo wanted his money, and that's that's all I'll say about that. Bottom line, I just I think it's going to be hard to craft a functional defense if at any point, you know, you're playing with Trey Young, Bogdan Bogdanovich, Gallo and John Collins on the floor at the same time. And 
I do really like the Dunn edition, but as a backup point guard, you can only affect your team's overall defense so much. Um, so I like that addition. Didn't really see why they were so enamored with Rondo. Don't think he helps them all that much, but I guess for a young team, getting some veteran old heads in there is usually a pretty good idea. So whatever. I, I don't see them as a loser. I'll be clear, but like, I, I don't think they're a clear winner either. I think they're somewhere in between. What's up pound the rock listeners. Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, give me your first loser. Detroit. Like, like as a city or? No, the Pistons. Oh, okay. I was gonna Come say, on. Detroit's cool, man. Yeah, I, I've spent some time in Detroit. It's enjoyable. I kind of sucks what's happened to that city. And uh, how... I would say it's an underrated city. It is. I mean, they just honestly like need to find a way to like bring people back to live in it and like i don't know gen- like generate some actual revenue for uh, a city that has been neglected i think for a long time tell you it's not bringing people back to detroit unfortunately the pistons correct <laughs> little caesar's arena will be slightly more sparsely populated than it was before but honestly not by much I don't know, man. Can you can you figure out what like the plan was here for this team this offseason? I mean, they had like a pretty decent draft night, right? Like they got Killian Hayes, a point guard who could be their point guard of the future that a lot of people are super high on, especially from an upside perspective. I think, I mean, he's really young, 19, like one of the younger players in the draft and is probably going to take a long time to reach whatever his ceiling actually is. But in the meantime... I don't know, man, shelling out three years and $60 million to Jeremy Grant. I really like Jeremy Grant as a player, as you well know. But like that was one of the biggest overpays of the offseason, I thought. Especially because like Jeremy Grant's a really good role player. So if you are a contending team or a team that's on the fringes of contention and you have the space and you need a role player exactly like Jeremy Grant, then maybe you can justify that overpay. But Jeremy Grant just like isn't really doing anything for a team like Detroit. And I mean, I guess on the other hand, you could say, okay, well, what are they going to do with their cap space? Uh, there was a report and I don't know how true it is. I think it was from Vincent Goodwill or, or one of the other beat writers who covers the Pistons basically saying that the, the Pistons were in on Fred Van Vliet, but backed away when the price got too steep. Van Vliet's making the same amount of money per year that Jeremy Grant is. And if you are trying to build a culture and a foundation for, you know, a competent team, I think Fred Van Vliet is a much better starting point than Jeremy Grant is. Um, So that was a head scratcher. Mason Plumlee at three years, 25 million was a head scratcher. Signing and trading Christian Wood might've been the biggest head scratcher of all, especially because the pick that they got back in the deal uh, was the number 16 pick 
in this year's draft, which they used to take another center, which again, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then they just like kind of kept accumulating bigs. Like they traded for Deadman at one point who they wound up stretching and he had one year and 13 million left on his deal. So now they have to stretch that out in order to fit in Jeremy Grant's contract. Uh, they traded Tony Bradley, who they got from the Jazz on draft night, for Zaire Smith from the Sixers, and then they immediately waved and stretched Zaire Smith. They signed Jalil Okafor. They signed Josh Jackson. I just, man, I don't know. I, I don't really know what the plan is here, and I think they are going to be one of the worst teams in the NBA next year. They've been one of the worst franchises in the NBA for you know the better part of a decade now, if not more, and... The Pistons thinking that Fred Van Vliet was too pricey for the range he ended up going for is exactly why the Pistons are where they are and why they've been where they are for the last decade plus. They just have seem to have no grasp of player value and worth and asset management, and it's a disaster, man. Like We both like Jeremy Grant, and as you mentioned, in the right situation, you can talk yourself into a Jeremy Grant overpay. You know, the Nuggets were reportedly willing to give him basically the same contract. And Jeremy Grant left reportedly because the, the role was going to be bigger in Detroit. But then you look at the front court that they've now put together, this insanely crowded front court. And it's like, okay, from the Pistons perspective, how are they going to give Jeremy Grant the role necessary for him to ever live up to a $20 million a year contract? And from Jeremy Grant's perspective, okay, yeah, like, you know, you've got the three-year deal, so you probably see yourself as more part of the future. But immediately... How big of a role do you think you're going to have on a in a front court that's got like 38 players in it? You know what I mean? Like it doesn't it doesn't make sense for both parties right now, other than for Jeremy Grant getting his money, which good for him. But the Pistons just didn't seem to have a worthwhile plan. You know, I, I was going to say they didn't seem to have a plan at all, and apparently they did because they were or they wanted friend fan lead, but they didn't have a worthwhile plan. They didn't really have like a, a smart steady plan and they didn't seem to have a contingency plan after that and as usual they mismanaged their money like like what are they doing with some of these guys like Jalil Okafor Mason Plumley, like you know you mentioned they ended up Isaiah Stewart uh the night of the draft they they lost Luke Kennard that's, lost, that's a move I actually don't mind they lost because, Tony Snell too right yeah they they traded Tony Snell and Kyrie Thomas who was their second round pick from a couple years ago in a trade for Deadman seemingly with the intent of stretching Deadman's contract. And they did that essentially so that they could fit Jeremy Grant into their cap space. But why? Like that's that's what I'm saying. Like there just didn't seem to be any sort of like reason. Yeah. And maybe for- you know, maybe it was just that they knew they were losing Christian Wood no matter what. Like he just had no interest in re-signing there. But I don't know, man. Like they, okay. they, they signed all these bigs and like they traded away the best of the bunch for yeah, some reason. You, you talk about how, you know, for a, a lot of these guys, if you show them the money, they'll they'll follow it. And I mentioned, you know, like for Crowder, maybe that wouldn't have been the situation or so for some other guys who are looking for a contender. For Christian Wood, given where how, like how his career has gone, Christian Wood would have followed the money. And the fact that he ends up getting roughly... $14 million a year in Houston when Detroit spends all this money on all these bigs probably could have found a way to keep Christian Wood if you really wanted to and if really like understood his value enough. And and so yeah, just like in, in terms of who they lost, 
how they lost them, how they allocated their money, the report that they thought the Fred sweepstakes had gotten too expensive, like just all of it. When you accumulate it all and look at it big picture, as usual, the Pistons are a loser. They're a loser of the offseason. They're going to lose a lot of basketball games on the court. They're going to be a loser for a long while. And there's not much else to say about it. I mean, I, I guess the one thing they did that I was cool with is they got DeLon right. <laughs> Yeah, and they got him basically in what turned out to be a three or maybe even four team trade. Like the Christian Wood sign and trade, I think is what brought them to Lawn, right? Because initially they were getting Ariza from the Rockets, but then Ariza wound up getting flipped to the Thunder, who flipped James Johnson to the Mavs, and the Mavs flipped DeLon right. And Justin Jackson. I don't know if Justin Jackson also came to the Pistons, but DeLon wound up with the Pistons. But man, what is DeLon Wright going to do? Yo, how is there going to be any space for this team's offense, man? They have no shooting. Like Maybe the Pistons and the Hawks should work a trade out. Yeah. I mean, I think looking at this Pistons roster, unless Blake Griffin is just like back to being what he was two years ago, this probably going to be the worst offense in the NBA of all time. So, yeah. And and like, look, I think there's, there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, Christian Wood is still, you know, at the end of the day, basically had like 60 good games in his career. Like, I don't think he has necessarily proven yet that he is, you know, like a consistently quality big man, but Man, those were those were sixty pretty damn good games last year. Like he was really efficient offensively, proved that he could essentially thrive playing the four or the five, being a dive man or a floor spacer. I think there's some defensive questions, but I just think to to kind of cap this off, I do need to issue a retraction about what I said about the Rockets on the last episode because I slammed them for making that deal, and it turned out to be a pretty good one for them. Like the, it wasn't just a salary dump of Trevor Ariza as it initially seemed. It was an Ariza sign and trade that brought them a player who, I I don't know that there was a player on the market who fit there better than Christian Wood does. And I think, um, you know, as I wrote when that deal was announced, I think what is uncertain about it is that we're not sure if, you know, this signing was like an olive branch to James Harden and made with the expectation that James Harden was going to be back next year. But I think the reason it makes sense and the reason maybe they thought it was worthwhile, because essentially what they did, if you trace this trade back, um, was that they swapped out Robert Covington for Christian Wood. And in, in a vacuum, like if the Rockets were just going for it all next year, I would much rather have Covington than Wood. But... Wood's also only 25. So I think what's great about it is that it works in both scenarios. You know, like whether he is there to complement Harden and Westbrook or whether he's there to be like the first piece in what their foundation is going to be once Harden and Westbrook are no longer there. I think you can make a case for, you know, him being an important part of that in either scenario. So I, I really like that for Houston. And I think that actually completely rewrites the the direction of their offseason. I would, yeah, but, I would still probably say that they're an offseason loser just because James Harden demanded a exactly. trade. The general dysfunction there makes them a loser, but I, I do think that they 
Raphael Stone in his first few months on the job, I think has done a decent job of nabbing some draft capital, which this team basically had zero of it. And now they have a little bit of it. Getting a player in wood that, to your point, can maybe be somewhat of a bridge to the future while also helping the team if Harden and Russ, you know, by extension, stay. So I think the Rockets are an overall loser, but not enough of a loser for us to spend that much more time talking about them being a loser. I, I think they've kind of salvaged things in a way. I think I, the Hornets are a loser. And I know you were saying off air, maybe you don't fully believe that they are, but I think they are, man. Like this is. I like them drafting LaMelo for a lot of reasons, both on the court and off, but you give Gordon Hayward $30 million a year for the next four years, you're a loser. I mean, it's worse than that because they had to stretch the last year of Batum's contract in order to fit Hayward into their space. Batum had $27 million left. They were one year away from getting that contract off of their books, finally. And instead, they're stretching it over three seasons. So in actuality, they're paying Gordon Hayward $39 million a year over the next three years. Yeah. And look, I know that we can't or shouldn't judge whether a team's a winner or loser this offseason based on things that happened last year. And I know it's very low-hanging fruit. But still, the same franchise that decided Campbell Walker was not worth maxing out and like we can have a debate about that, you know, in and of itself. And and we might both come to the agreement that they had a point in that, yeah, like on its at face value, Kemba Walker maybe doesn't strike you as a max guy, the best guy in the title, whatever you want to say. You're the Charlotte friggin' Hornets. Okay. If Kemba Walker wanted to stick around long term, you pay him to stick around. He at least is the start of something. You can't in good faith insinuate that Kemba Walker isn't worth maxing out one year, which maybe sends the message that, you know what, we're interested in the long game. We're going to be patient here. Kemba's not going to move the needle enough for us in the next two, three years, and we're looking to contend long-term. You can, in good faith, use that excuse one year, and then the very next summer, give Gordon friggin' Hayward $30 million a year and be so gung-ho about it and about what you're doing this offseason that you decide to stretch Batum for three years instead of having him just on for this. Like following this team and their decision-making from one year to the next makes no goddamn sense. Like one year, it looks like they're finally going to be patient and the next they're completely selling out for what, the 11th seed? I mean, I think that they can contend for the eighth seed. Like I don't see them as being that far behind the Hawks, to be perfectly honest. That's very dependent on how good LaMelo actually is upon entering the league and their front court depth is questionable, but I really like PJ Washington. I thought he had a great rookie season. I I'm still holding out some hope for miles bridges. I'm not nearly as high on him as I used to be, but I think, you know, the one thing that you can say is, okay, we know that the Hornets are always going to have to overpay to get top talent. And you know, Gordon Hayward is what, like the like a top sixty player in the league. Sure, you know, somewhere in that range. I actually so here I'm going to pull this up because I made a list. I made a top hundred list, not like for the sake of like publicizing it or having people debate it or pick it apart, but just for my own sake, so I could reference it when something like this came up. And I have Hayward 
as the 53rd best player in the league. So, you know, I, I don't, he's not an elite talent, but he's a good player who I think probably immediately becomes the best player on the Hornets and fits a pretty clear role there. Yes, he's being overpaid, but if you look at the team, like if the goal here is just to be as good as you can possibly be, I don't think, you know, they weren't doing any better than Gordon Hayward as far as guys that they could have realistically added because anyone who's much higher up than Gordon Hayward on that ranking list, even if the Hornets threw the bag at them, like probably isn't going there. So now they have, you know, they have a, an interesting young backcourt in Devontae Graham and LaMelo Ball, uh, a front court that includes PJ Washington and okay, like at the, at the center spot, they're kind of weak, but like Washington bridges Hayward. I think they're going to be like pretty competent. And I don't know. It's just kind of like, if you're the Hornets, what are your alternatives? Really? There's you know, always what, what is, an alternative to giving Gordon Hayward $120 million. There is, but I, I just like, if you want to be, if you're the Hornets and you want to take a big swing to like really improve your team, like you are paying a premium. Like there's a tax essentially that you have to pay for playing in a market like Charlotte. Like you have to just kind of go above and beyond to get those players in the door and no Gordon Hayward is not worth that money and he's not going to live up to that contract, but he will make their team better. And for a team that, you know, getting the eight seed would mean everything to that team. I can kind of see the rationale and, and, and I can see them saying like, you know, we don't want LaMelo to come into the league and like play for a mess of a team that doesn't really have any hope. Like we want to like from jump street, be a team that is like reasonably competitive and playing high leverage games late in the season. And I can understand that. So I definitely don't like that contract. I think all the points you made about them letting Kemba walk only to turn around and throw all that money at Hayward are totally valid. But I don't think they're like an out and out loser on the off season because I think given their goals and, you know, you can argue about whether those should be their goals or not, but like given what they're trying to do, I actually think Hayward will help them a lot. Do you have any other losers before we get? I mean, I think just like on the Hayward point, Boston, because, and again, this is like, I don't have a TikTok on this. Like, I don't know what the timing was or like how much truth there were to these rumors, but the report was that <laughs> Hayward. Go continue, continue. Wait, you thought I was. I, I don't know. I thought you were make. I thought you were about to go on some rant about like not being young and like you don't have a TikTok. And like, <laughs> I was like, all right, man, chill. Like, yeah, no, I, I just mean like I don't know what the sort of like the the timeline or the no, sequence of events was. But continue. Please. Point taken. Um, the reporting was that Hayward really wanted to go to Indiana, and was pushing essentially for a sign and trade because Indiana didn't have the cap space to absorb him. And that the Pacers were willing to put Miles Turner on the table. And then, you know, the, the package reportedly would have been Miles Turner and Doug McDermott. Wasn't good enough for the Celtics. They pushed for Miles Turner and either Victor Oladipo or TJ Warren, which would have been psychotic because it would have been selling ridiculously low on Oladipo. And honestly, I don't think that Hayward is that much better, if better at all, than TJ Warren. So they were never going to do that. And then Charlotte swoops in. And again, maybe 
Charlotte would have made that Godfather offer anyway. Maybe it was already on the table. Maybe Hayward ultimately would have gone there no matter what. But it sure seems like Boston haggling over the return for a player who had opted out and technically no longer even played for them may have cost them the kind of rim-protecting center that they really need. And yeah, they went and got Tristan Thompson, but I would have much preferred Miles Turner on that team, especially because he also can, you know, would have been able to space the floor for them while providing much better rim protection than Tristan Thompson provides. And Thompson's a better rebounder, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, if haggling cost them Miles Turner, like, they, they didn't have any leverage in this situation. I don't know why they were acting like they did. And instead, they basically, they lose Hayward for nothing, which I think has to make them a loser, right? Like, they, how many teams in the league lost that kind of a talent for nothing this offseason? Probably none. None that didn't want well, to. You know, like yeah, like exactly. Gallo. Gallo is maybe comparable, but... That, that's where I was going next. Yeah, there is a team I, that lost a lot of talent for nothing, but they were trying to lose a lot of talent for nothing. Not for nothing, though. Gallo's the only guy that they lost for nothing. Well, it's a lot of talent. Well, and actually, and okay, so here's what I want to go with this. Okay. Not for nothing. They got, they ended up with a lot of picks. Um, as far as your Boston point, like I agree. And it's, that's peak Danny Ainge energy, but the thunder to me are a loser. Yes. They, they're not a loser in the sense that they failed to accomplish their, they, they did accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. And yes, they can make it rain draft picks. Like we have never seen before. They have half the picks in the next 19 drafts. But when you really look at the talent that they surrendered and the pretty darn good team that they broke up that could have been competitive in the short term and long, like without affecting their long-term outlook, I think they're a loser. Okay, Gallo might be the only one they actually lost for nothing in terms of like overall assets and picks and stuff, but look at what they turned everything into like CP turned into Rubio and Ubre in a pick, right? And then Rubio and Ubre get flipped from like basically for picks in terms of like NBA level talent they got right now for all those guys they lost. What is it? Al Horford, which doesn't even count. That's like a dump that it's a contract Philly didn't want anymore. What? Like do they have Trevor Ariza right now? James Johnson? Like what? Even okay. Ubre. Ubre to me was like, a guy that they could have kept and c- continued on with because he's young enough and improving enough to like still be part of whatever it is they're trying to build. Like even Ubre has to be flipped for picks. Like at some point, look, we obviously can't judge any of this until we see what these picks turn into over the years. And if Sam Presti manages to put a godfather offer together for a disgruntled superstar at some point soon, Sure, then I will gladly walk all this back because that's the point of this is to accumulate stars. But as it stands right now, I don't think they got enough, forget like veteran talent because they're obviously not trying to win. I don't even think they got enough like young NBA level talent for the amount of overall talent that they lost this offseason. I don't think you can make all that up just with picks unless you trade for a superstar. Well, yeah, the... I think that maybe if if you were to focus in on one issue, one problem with their offseason, it's that they see, and again, like this is dependent on what was actually on the table for the players they traded, but they seem to prioritize future picks over young talent. And like, 
you could say, wow, this team has such a bright future because they have 18 first round draft picks in the next six drafts. And you wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but that bright future is entirely theoretical. And as far as actual young talent that they can build around, it's basically Shea and like maybe Lou Dort and maybe Darius Baisley. You know, and so I think if they were going to trade all of those guys, like they didn't wind up signing and trading Gallo, which I thought could have netted them something. The one young player that I thought they could have kept, like you mentioned in the Chris Paul trade was Ubre, who they again flipped for another future pick down the road. And it's like, okay, yeah, they have all these picks. We don't know what those are going to turn into. And I think, you know, just a good illustration of why we shouldn't just get too excited about them accumulating picks is the Al Horford trade because yeah, he takes on Al Horford in exchange for Danny Green. And like, look, big picture, nice piece of business because they traded Dennis Schroeder for Danny Green and got a first round pick in that deal. Then flipped Danny Green for another pick that involved them taking on Horford's contract. But They also sent out Terrence Ferguson in that deal, who was their first round pick three years ago. And nobody mentioned that because it's just like, oh, Terrence Ferguson, just a throw in. But like, that's a pretty good illustration of the fact that like first round picks can seem really valuable and then turn out to be not so valuable, especially when, not especially when, because Sam Presti's made some great draft picks in the past, but the Thunder's drafting record in recent years has been not great. To put it lightly there's something to be said for all of that. And just for saying like, you know, if like they haven't really built out a young talent base in the way that you might've thought they could, given how much veteran talent they traded. I think the the upside there is, you know, they're going to tank next year in a season in which most of the rest of the Western conference is trying to win. They're going to get a high draft pick snare, a talented player and what's thought to be a really excellent draft, at least at the top. And then from there, it's like, okay, you have Shea, you have top draft pick X, and then you have this bundle of picks that you can potentially use to trade for a superstar. And I think that is pro- like, they're literally not going to be able to use all those picks, right? Like they have, more than an entire NBA roster's worth of first round picks over the next six drafts. So I think the plan has to be at some point along the way when they're ready to hit the accelerator on their rebuild, bundle a ton of those picks in exchange for a star. And like I said, if they do if and when they do that, I will gladly walk back a lot of this criticism. But as it stands right now, I thought they they could have they could have had that kind of asset capital to swing that future deal without accumulating all the picks they did in this window. Ubre to me, is a perfect example. Like, the extra capital they got in that deal isn't going to be the difference between whether they can swing a superstar trade or not. And so, I don't know. It just it just seemed like they were so committed. Presti was so committed to this vision that he seemed to lose sight of the forest from the trees. I guess we'll see how it works out in the coming years, literally. Um, 
unless you had any other losers to mention, there was just like two more things that I, I was going to bring up and we can literally be like a minute on them each. Cause I think we're, we're coming close to an hour and a half here of people's time. But uh, the first thing I wanted to mention is because I think everyone would assume that the warriors are a loser having lost clay. And we mentioned that after our draft night pod, but I did want to mention that I, I thought outside of that very obvious, huge loss, I thought they pivoted pretty well in getting Kelly Oubre. The Brad Wanamaker deal, I thought was a really under the radar, solid pickup for them. They also signed Bazemore. You still have a 31, 32, however Steph, old Steph is, even if he's 32, okay? 31, 32 year old, MVP caliber talent at the tail end of his prime. For a lot of teams in that situation, they'd see that as a reason to go for it. So kudos to the Warriors for continuing to go for it and spending an insane amount of money, a tax money, to continue to go for it despite the loss of clay. It increases their tax bill from 66 million to 134 million. Think so essentially that. a $68 million hike in their luxury tax bill for Kelly Oubre, who is a player I like a lot, but <laughs> I mean that's a that, that's a big commitment, you know, to to be willing to pay that much in tax dollars to bring in Kelly Oubre in a season in which there aren't going to be fans in stands, you know, aside from maybe a few in the luxury suites at Chase Center. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, we spend a lot of time slagging owners for being cheap and forcing their front offices to make moves to duck the tax. And I think we should give credit where it's due and credit the Warriors ownership group for being willing to spend that amount of money to keep the team afloat and yeah like they're definitely an offseason loser because they lost clay thompson uh, i don't think there's anything we need to add to that that we didn't say on last week's episode it just sucks any way you slice it but i think Ubre, you know is about as good as they could have done as far as getting a replacement using the trade exception that they had and uh, you know i do think you got to give props to their ownership group for for being willing to do it Okay, last thing. We talked a lot about the Bogdanovich trade last week. The Bucks end up pivoting. They so we all we already know they traded for Drew Holiday. They end up signing DJ, DJ Augustin, Bobby Portis, Tory Craig, Bryn Forbes, and re-signed Pat Connaughton. When, by the way, Wes Matthews makes a quarter of the amount of money Pat Connaughton's going to make. Now that we know how they pivoted after the Bogdan trade, winner, loser, neutral. What, how do you feel about the Bucks? I think you take their offseason as a whole. It's a neutral. Because as much as they overpaid for Holiday, they needed to do whatever they could to make themselves a more viable playoff team this year. They needed to do whatever they could to convince Giannis to stay. Obviously, if Giannis signs the Supermax, they're an unquestioned winner of the offseason. No questions asked. But, you know, looking at the team as a whole, and obviously just from like an optics perspective, the Bogdan thing blowing up is like a hit, I think. And... There, there was also like a bunch of cap mechanics they screwed up in the Connaughton deal, which forced them to have to give him a third year on his contract, which was not great to begin with, in my opinion. I don't really like Bobby Portis as an addition for them. Empty calories. I understand why they talked themselves into him as like a buy low candidate. And I think they probably look at, you know, what they were able to do with Brooke Lopez and think, okay, like Bobby Portis has not been a good defender in his career, but if we can sort of simplify his role, and I'm not comparing him to Brooke Lopez, by the way, because even before Lopez came to Milwaukee, 
he had a history of being a legitimately great shot blocker and, you know, a rim protector who, while not the most mobile, like could still be something like an impact defender. Whereas Portis has no history of that whatsoever. He doesn't make an impact around the rim. He doesn't defend well on the perimeter, but he's big. And if they can kind of simplify his role and just maybe help him sort of understand the nuances of their scheme, can they turn him into a league average drop defender? No. To the point that to the point that his offensive skill set, which is pretty solid, like he's he's a legitimate stretch big. Like he can shoot it from mid range or from three point range. He can score. Um, you know, can they get him defensively to the point that he can actually be a plus player? My bet would be on no, but I kind of understand the gamble. I think the point is, you know, at the end of all of this, did the team get better? Maybe a little bit. Um, their depth is worse. And their starting lineup to me is better because the upgrade from Bledsoe to Holiday is significant in a playoff setting. So let's call it like a wash at the end of the day. And then if Giannis signs with Supermax, it's a win. A wash isn't good enough for where they are and where they needed to get to. Yes, if Giannis signs, again, going back to last week, I think it's even more evidence that he's fine being a loyal loser, given the way this offseason <laughs> unfolded. It would be asinine of him to sign I just want to say I'm not okay with this with this title, with this tag. That is absolutely what he will be if he signs a Supermax extension now, after everything that's happened in the last week. Look at this team. I'm looking at it. Half measures is what this team is. Well... <laughs> Okay, well, on one breath, you're saying they way overpaid for Drew Holiday, and on the other, you're saying half measures. Like Drew Holiday in and of himself is a half measure for a team that should have been going all out for Chris Paul. I, I don't think that that's necessarily true, given the disparity in age there and the fact that if they wanted to give themselves more than just a two-year window, Holiday actually made more sense than Chris Paul. Well, we'll see, but they might have a longer than two-year window because the reigning two-time MVP might be fine being a loyal loser. We will see <laughs> how it goes. Uh, I don't co-sign this message. I just want to say it one more time. All right. I, I signed it twice for the both of us. All right. I think uh, we've gone long enough today. I will give this week's fan shout out to Jonathan Salormi in Ottawa. He gets this week's fan shout out and I've got two lined up already for our next two. One in Europe Ooh. and one in North America. So keep the fan Reach outs coming, and we'll keep the fan shout outs coming. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. 